David begins uh, this psalm by extolling God, not only as his God, but as his king. In verse 1, I will exalt you, my God, the king. Now, it's protocol. I don't know whether you know this. I've never met a king, uh, but uh, it's protocol for a king and a head of state to be given gifts when they visit another country. Uh, a country in Africa called Mali recently gave Francois Hollande, he's the president of, uh, of France, they gave him a camel because they were so grateful that he'd helped in driving out some uh, militants who were causing a lot of problems. The French president, he decided there wasn't much room for a camel in the Elysee Palace, so he left it in the care of a Malian uh, family instead. Uh, they were a bit embarrassed to find out actually the camel was cooked into a stew by that family uh, so Marley's uh, somewhat embarrassed government subsequently gave uh, Mr Hollande a bigger and better looking camel he said <laughs> and the Queen and Prince Philip you know they can't step outside Buckingham Palace without being showered with the ill-advised gifts uh, the island of Vanuatu uh, gave Prince Philip a load of pigs uh, 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 and then a club to kill the pigs with uh, and then a local costume which was a real, rather revealing sort of uh, grass skirt outfit uh, which as far as I know the prince has never worn in public anyway but, uh, so it's, it's uh, usual uh, to give gifts to kings um, but what can we give our God because everything is already his in Psalm 50, God is speaking and he says, Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now that doesn't mean that the cattle on hill a thousand and one belongs to somebody else. It's the poetic way of God saying, It's all mine. I own it. I made it. Um, so what can we do? We can simply bring our praise and our worship and that's what God, uh, what David says he will do. In verse 1, I will exalt you my God the King, I'll praise your name forever and ever. Every day I'll praise you and extol your name forever and ever. So David brings his praise uh, and there are lots of things actually in this psalm you could praise God for. I just want to draw your attention to four things. Uh, because David praises God for being great. He praises God for being glorious. He praises God for being gracious. And he praises God for being good. Um, verse 3 uh, starts by extolling God for being great. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Uh, David is thinking of the greatness of God shown in what he, he does in his mighty works. Works so great that actually we can't plumb their depths. We can't fathom them. We can't work them out. Uh, our reading goes on one generation commends your works to another they tell of your mighty acts they speak of the glorious splendour of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works they tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds mighty acts wonderful works 
great deeds. And as we've studied uh, Psalms over the summer, we've often thought about uh, God's work of creation. When we, we look at the seas and the mountains and the sky and the flowers, uh, actually it's hard uh, not to be moved to praise God. I read of an evangelist who told some prison inmates, if creation doesn't switch you on, you haven't got any switches, he said. Um, but as wonderful as God's works of creation are, surely uh, the greatest of God's works are his works of salvation. If you read the Old Testament, in, in Old Testament times, salvation was God uh, about delivering Israel, his chosen people, from slavery in Egypt and bringing them uh, very tortuously to the Promised Land. But he also brought them back to the Promised Land after he sent them into exile into foreign lands because of their sin. And for us, this side of the cross, God's salvation is his uh, work of saving us from slavery to sin through Christ's death and resurrection uh, and bringing us into the promised land of his kingdom and he does that now uh, although it's not fully now it will be consummated fully at the end of time in the new heavens and the new earth and the cross might seem like weakness to us, you know, but God's abundant goodness and God's righteousness are displayed in the death of Jesus. In Jesus' death, God shows himself to be great in the way that he saves sinners. Great is what God is in his person, in his nature. And in verse 4, David speaks of one generation commending your works to another that doesn't uh, simply mean that the story of what God has done in the past will be handed on to children by the redeemed community, his people, us. Though that is true, that's what we'll do. We'll refer back to what God has done. But it does mean that each generation of believers, you and me, will add our accounts of what God has done for us uh, when we tell that old, old story. You see, God continues to act uh, for us and in us. Part of the praise we offer God is when we recognise the truth of God's greatness and glory displayed in his works of creation and in his work of our salvation and we confess it before him. So God is great. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And then God is glorious. Uh, David uh, speaks of the glorious splendour of your majesty in verse 5 and the glorious splendour of your kingdom in verse 12. God's person is glorious um, and God's realm is glorious. God is glorious. When the Old Testament speaks of uh, someone glorious um, that person has kind of riches and position and power but when God is described as glorious well it means he has all these things but it also describes the blinding splendour of the light by which God reveals himself to his people and that glory also means actually 
God himself. When Moses asked God, now show me your glory, he wasn't talking about the cloud of light, he'd already seen that. Moses was asking for a special revelation of God that would leave nothing else to be desired. And the New Testament continues that theme. It tells of God's majesty and his perfection. God is called the Father of glory. And Jesus manifested the, uh, the blinding splendour of light when his face shone with glory as he went up a mountain with three of his followers at his transfiguration. And it's through Christ that the perfection of God's nature is made known to us. Uh, we live in Britain. Uh, it's a good place to live, you know. It's a good place to live. But it's a broken place. Uh, we only have to listen to news accounts about this town of Rotherham, my own town of Doncaster, to know that we live in a broken kingdom. But actually everything about the king is glorious and everything about his kingdom is glorious. The glorious splendour of your kingdom. An Old Testament prophet called Isaiah describes what God's kingdom is like in contrast to the kingdom that we live in. Arise, shine, he said, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people's but the Lord rises on you and his glory appears to you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. Uh, to you the riches of the nations will come. And we live in a kind of in-between time, and now and not yet of God's kingdom. We are in God's kingdom now, but that kingdom is not yet fully realised. It's yet to come fully. But it will come. It will come fully. And it's an everlasting kingdom. And God's rule endures through all generations, it says in verse 13. So God is great, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And God is glorious. David speaks of the glorious splendour of your majesty. And then God is gracious. The psalmist deals with God's grace, his compassion, his patience and his love beginning at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. All your works praise you. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom's an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, is a nearly perfect echo of how God revealed himself uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai that I read at the beginning from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It speaks of grace and mercy. 
And grace and mercy, you know, are the amazing, utterly surprising thing about God. You see, grace is undeserved blessing freely given to us by God. Uh, Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Getting what we do deserve is justice. Mercy is God giving us what we don't deserve. Certainly God is almighty, all-wise, all-knowing. God would not be God without being all those important things and more. We can expect God to be almighty and all-wise and all-knowing and all those other things. But what we can't expect is that God should be gracious and merciful to us. We have rebelled against his rightful authority. When he sent his son, men crucified him. When Moses asked to see God's glory, Moses wanted to see God, as it were, face to face in all his splendour. God said he wouldn't be able to show Moses his face because no one can see God's face and live. But God said he would proclaim his name to Moses. And the heart of that revelation uh, of God is his name Jehovah. It means I am who I am. And if we ask, but what is Jehovah? I am who I am. What's he like? The answer is, I'm compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. And David celebrates God's grace. He uses words like gracious, compassion, love, goodness. It picks up on verses 3 to 7, too, speaking of God's mighty acts again, but this time as evidence of his grace. And when David speaks of the glorious splendour of your kingdom, it's a reminder that part of God's graciousness to us is his rule over us. So often we don't want him to rule over us. We don't like it. We don't, we don't want to do it. He asks us to do things. We? No, 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 no. No, 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 I've got a better way. But actually, we can't rule ourselves. Shortly you'll be going to be studying the, uh, the Old Testament book of Judges, I think. And in the book of Judges it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's rule over us as his people, is a work of God's grace to us. You know, mighty king in the Old Testament times, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't associate uh, and acknowledge the grace of God. When he looked out over the great city of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory, my majesty? And God judged that king for his pride. He took away his sanity. He drove him out of the palace to live with the animals, to behave like an animal, actually, for several years. When Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson, he praised God with the words of this psalm, uh, quoting verse 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Part of God's grace, actually, is to humble us. And to bring us gratefully into his kingdom through faith in Jesus. We don't earn or buy or deserve a place in this kingdom. It's all the merits of Jesus. It's uh, with his blood 
that you purchased that men from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Such a great God. Great is the Lord. Such a glorious God. The glorious splendour of your majesty. But such a gracious God. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. And then we find that God is good. Uh, David celebrates God's abundant goodness in verses 13 to 18 here. He gives five ways in which God is good. See, God is faithful to his promises. We can trust him. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. He helps the inadequate. I'm so pleased about that. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. He gives food to his creatures. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And he answers those who pray. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. And he protects those who are his. Uh, verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. How does God demonstrate his goodness? He does it by caring for his creation as he promised to do. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we are bowed down with trouble and distress, he restores us. When we are hungry, he feeds us. When we look to him with our hands open and empty and held out, he satisfies us with good things. God does this for human beings, of course, and especially his people. But the goodness of God is even wider than mankind. It's to all he has made, to every living thing. The promises of God to his redeemed people show how good God is. But what humankind needs most of all is God. And God promises to give us himself if we come to him through Jesus. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 11, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And this wonderful, all-encompassing uh, theme in these last verses through to verse 20 is seen in that word, all. All his promises, all he's made, all those who fall, all who are bowed down, all who look to you, all his ways, all he has made, all who call on him, all who love him, and all the wicked. But God is also good because he's righteous. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he's made, it says in verse 17. God is always righteous. He's always without blame. Even in his work of saving sinners, justice, God's justice was met in punishing Christ instead of us. 
in Romans 3 it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did that to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus in verse 18 we read the Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth he fulfills the desires of those who fear him he hears their cry and saves them the Lord watches all, all who love him God is so good throughout our whole lives God shows himself to be a good a caring a saving and a keeping God and then in verse 24 the first time in this psalm the wicked come into the picture the Lord watches over all who love him but the wicked he will destroy that's a reminder that our praise is offered in a sinful uh, broken world we're not in heaven yet uh, but if you trust the Lord Jesus you will be and Psalm 145 indeed the book of Psalms ends on uh, this note for Psalm 145 says let every creature praise his holy name forever and forever and Psalm 150 verse 6 commands let everything that has breath praise the Lord and the last verse of Psalm 145 is the last word we have from David in the Bible it's like his last will and testament his great legacy for future generations for you and me he praises God and he invites others to praise God also my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord let every creature praise his holy name forever and forever uh, so our psalm tells us that God is great he's glorious he's gracious and he's good and we should praise him so what difference should that make to us sitting here today and I do struggle sometimes with this because actually it brings great freedom a great liberation and great joy our friend Tim Chester he puts it like this because God is great we don't have to control or manoeuvre or stage manage people or circumstances or events even when it seems as though things aren't going our way the computer crashes the train's late the need for a new washing machine wipes our savings out our friend is so ill and I struggle sometimes I want to live in this fantasy world where I'm king of my own world but actually in the real world my God is sovereign and I need to trust him he sets me free to trust him because he's so great and then because God is glorious actually I don't have to fear the rejection or disapproval of others I should fear God the psalmist says my, friends tre my uh, flesh trembles in fear of you but the fear of God frees us to take other people's expectations of us seriously 
We want to love them as God commanded, but we're not to be enslaved by their expectations. We're free not to serve them for what they can give us in return, their approval, their affection, their security, whatever. But we're free to serve them in love. And then because God is gracious, we don't have to justify ourselves to God or to anyone else. God has already graciously justified me through the finished work of Christ. We are accepted and loved by God. And there's nothing we've done to earn it. And there's nothing we can do to lose it. We have nothing left to prove. And then God is good. And because God is good, I can look just to him for my comfort. I don't have to look uh, into any other things. In God is our fulfilment, our satisfaction, our joy, our identity. Whatever sin offers, God offers more. Because God offers his himself. God isn't just good. Actually, he's better. Better than anything else. And he's the source of all joy. So we need to trust in God's greatness. We need to fear God's glory. We need to rest in God's grace. And we need to delight in God's goodness. How do we praise him? I want to finish in the way that a preacher called Christopher Ashe actually started this psalm. So let me take you back to verses 1 and 2. They're up there. I'll exalt you, my God and King. I'll praise your name forever and forever. Every day I'll praise you and extol your name forever and forever. Notice the praise words. Exalt, praise, extol. Words that speak of a praise that's unreserved. A praise that holds nothing back. It's praise from my, my mind, my heart, my affections, my emotions, all of me. Uh, no corner of my being is held back from praising God. Uh, then notice the praise spoken here is unbroken. Every day I'll praise you. No days off in praising God. No holidays. No bank holidays. You don't go to the seaside and stop praising God. And then we see that the praise here is unending. I'll praise your name forever and ever. And extol your name forever and ever. This is a praise that never fades away. Can I be cheeky? I don't want, to, I don't want you to answer. But how's your praise life? Is your praise life unreserved, unbroken, unending? I doubt anyone here will say, oh yes, oh yes, I've cracked this. That's my praise life, exactly. Unreserved, unbroken, unending. I've got it, got the tick. I don't think so. Some of you may say, well, actually, I know that's how it should be. But it isn't. And what you do is you get your daily to-do list out and you had another thing to do. Praise God every day. And what you do is you give yourself another reason to beat yourself up every day. Because you make another resolution and actually you're not going to keep it, are you? If you're like me, you'd probably despair if I was asked, how's your praise life? Because I don't, and I haven't, and I can't, 
And no matter how hard I try, I won't. You see, for some of us, praise is difficult. Sometimes it depends on your temperament. When Dillis and I did a lot of work with uh, young people, a long time ago now, uh, but they uh, went through a phase of deciding which Winnie the Pooh character uh, all the leaders were. There was no contest for me because I'm Eeyore. Gloom is my default mode. So uh, how is my heart turned to praise? I'll tell you, it isn't by somebody exhorting me to praise God. You know, the kind of thing, come on, you've got no reason to. Pull your socks up, look how great he is. Do what the Bible told you, you know you ought to. I've sat through a service in the last couple of weeks where it was all that. God loves you. Come on, put away your sin. Praise him, give thanks. I feel worse coming out of services like that than I do when I go in. You see, praise for me won't come from exhortation. Praise for me comes from taking me to the gospel, reminding me of the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of God the Son. His work to save me, a sinner. My heart is turned to praise by being reminded again and again and again that Christ died and rose from the dead to save even me. Only the gospel, only the good news of sinners saved by grace will bring a sinner like me to genuine praise. You see, in verse 1 and 2, at the heart of the universe is a king praising a king. And everything I've said about these verses is true. Praise, undeserved, unbroken, unending. But actually we're not being asked to sing it. Because this is David's song, long before it becomes our song. David says, I will exalt you, I will praise, I will extol. David says, I, 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 the anointed king, will praise you, my God, the king. See, part of the king's role was to lead the people of God in praise. He was their representative head. And David pledges to God the king unreserved, unbroken and unending praise. But the difficulty is, David didn't do it. Think, adultery and murder in the Bathsheba debacle. Think, David, actually, you're dead. But David, you see, isn't just telling God. He's telling his people, I'm making known the greatness and the faithfulness of God. And a theologian called Klaus Westermann said this, All these voices in the Psalms call for a praise that was yet to be given. The Psalms call for a praise yet to be given. And David here is calling for a praise yet to be given a praise that he didn't give a praise that his son Solomon didn't give a praise that none of the kings gave a praise that none of the priests gave until centuries later a boy sang psalms in the synagogue and as he grew as a teenager he sang psalms in the synagogue 
And there's a man, he sang psalms in the synagogue and every time he heard the call to praise, his whole being answered, yes, I'll exalt you my God. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I'll praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And he did. With perfection in every word, with perfection in every thought and action of his life, with perfection in every affection of his heart, he gave glory to the Father and proclaimed how great the Father was. See, the words in this psalm, words that were David's in shadow, became Jesus' words in substance. And in the praise of David, we hear the words of Christ himself. For Christ is the King who praises the King. Jesus does what the praises of David were meant to do, but didn't. What the praises of Israel were meant to do, but didn't. What my praises are meant to do, but don't. But Jesus, the Saviour of sinners, praises the Father with a praise that's unreserved and unbroken and unending. And right now, at this moment, at the heart of the universe, is the King praising the King for you and for me.